Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. And we're going to be talking about how not all good works are good. And how do you define good works? Right? One common uh, question that Christians usually have to deal with is, is it only Christians who are good? Can there be non-Christians who do good? And does God accept them? If he doesn't, how come they're doing good, they're not Christian, and yet they go to hell? You know, these good non-Christians, sometimes equally as moral, and sometimes even more moral and ethical than Christians, why do they go to hell? And why do these Christians, who seem to have worse character, worse personality flaws, and who claim forgiveness in Christ, but yet commit the same sins over and over again, why are they accepted? Is God partial? Is God, is his judgment flawed? Um, why is the good works of non-believers not good enough for God? Right? Uh, that's, something what, that's something we want to consider today as we continue our series in the Westminster Confession of Faith. So with that in mind, as, you, as I'm reading out loud, I want you to follow along silently in your Bibles with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 13, it's the entire chapter. Hear the word of God. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, and have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is the word of God. I love this chapter. Um, I've heard this chapter, I've heard this chapter being preached at weddings. Uh, I've heard it being referenced in counseling sessions for dating and marriage. Um, I've heard it preached on the Sunday before Valentine's Day. Uh, but I've never thought to look at this passage in terms of what we believe about good works. It's interesting because we look at this as the love chapter, right? But there's another part to it. In Paul's message about love in 1 Corinthians 13, 
he's also talking about good works. So in order to make this point about love, he brings up a bunch of good works. And he says, without love, all these good works is worthless. And I want to tell you two things today. What is good works without love? What is good works without love? And not what is love, but who is love? And I'm going to explain. What is good works without love? Well, when you look at the first three verses, verse 1, verse 2, and verse 3, Paul mentions two things about good works that is void of love. He says, number one, they're extravagant, meaning it's very visible, it's very noticeable, and it accomplishes and achieves very practical and measurable things. It's extravagant. Number two, but it's worthless. It has no value. It has no use. And it accomplishes, actually, the very thing it needs to accomplish, it fails to accomplish. So it's worthless. It's useless. What is good works without love? Well, Paul talks about tongues. He brings up tongues. And he's talking about something verbal, right? So for those of us who value uh, communication, he's talking about tongues. And what, is, what does he say about it? He talks about foreign languages, the tongues of men. And so when he says, uh, though, I speak with the, though I speak in the tongues of men, though I speak in all of these foreign languages, it's extravagant and it's very impressive, but it's like a noisy a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Uh, and he mentions the tongues of angels. Now, what is this? Well, some people believe it's the language of literally angels. So some believe it's a heavenly language. And a lot of people interpret this as tongues that people pray, that people use during prayer. Uh, ecstatic speech, right? If you want to use a technical term, you can call it glossolalia, right? Whatever you want to call it. Is it heavenly language? We don't really know what this is, what Paul is talking about. But it's definitely not the natural foreign languages that exist on earth, like Korean, like English, like French, German, like Chinese, right? It doesn't, it's not one of those, definitely. And what Paul is saying is that it's like a noisy gong. And the emphasis of that description is on echoing. Now, when do you hear an echo the best? In an empty room, exactly. So what his point is, is that there's this loud sound, and it resonates, and it's very noticeable, but no one's there to hear it. It benefits no one. That's his point. That's why it's worthless. It's extravagant, but worthless. And he's saying tongues, whether it be many foreign languages or whether it even be a heavenly language, without love, it's an echoing. It's a noisy gong. It's not only that, it's a clanging cymbal. Now, this phrase in verse 1 refers to a very shrill sound. And what that means is if you were a very high-pitched sound, that causes goosebumps and your hairs to stand, right? Like, for example, nails on a chalkboard, <laughs> right? It's very shrill. It's high-pitched and piercing, right? 
this Klein symbol. And what it means is it's people, even, even if there are people, even if there are people to receive the sound, to hear it, it's so um, detestable. It's so, people cringe and they, don't, they cover their ears and they don't want to hear it, right? And that's what tongues is when it's lacking of love. He moves on to prophetic powers. Again, this is about communication. It's a verbal uh, good work, right? And he says, though I have prophetic powers, and he's talking about preaching. This hits home, right? Prophetic powers is a person who has been chosen by God. God gives them their, his truth to relay and communicate to his people. And he's saying that if you prophesy, if you preach God's word and there is no love, right, it's worthless. It's totally worthless. Um, he moves on in verse 2 to say, understand all mysteries and all knowledge. Now, from the verbal works, right, he moves on to the mental works. So he's talking about understanding and knowledge. If people come to you because you're a knowledge guru, right, they come to you for advice or whatever, if you have all understanding of the things that most people can't figure out, it's worthless without love. And he says, all faith has to, move, has to remove mountains, right? All faith has to remove mountains. And he moves into the mental and the emotional, right? So if your trust and your belief, right, is so genuine, right, so real, that you can remove mountains, right, to do impossible things with your faith. It's also nothing without love. And sacrifice, well, in verse 3, he's moving from the verbal communication to the mental, to the emotional, and now he's addressing the behavioral. And he says, he talks about two kinds of sacrifice. And he says, if you give away all that you have, <laughs> that's incredible, right? All that you have, really? That means there is nothing you own, right? You're in a Job-like state where your house is destroyed, your family is destroyed, your possessions are gone, even your health is gone. You have nothing, right? Even if you give away all that you have without love, you gain nothing. And even if you deliver up, if he were to deliver up his body to be burned, Right? You can be talking about martyrdom, but a passionate uh, belief in something in, and to the point where you will sacrifice even your own life for it. Without love, you gain nothing. It does nothing. It's worthless. It's powerless. This is pretty extreme. Right? People are saying with this passage, right? You, well, you can say, well, it's not just Christianity that has people doing good. There are a lot of people out there who are not Christian, who are in maybe different religions or no religion at all, and they're doing a lot of good works. They're giving away what they have in extravagant measures. Some are, they, they lost their health because they worked so hard at something in life. Some of them, they understand and have all this knowledge. Some of them, when everybody was a naysayer, they were the only ones who believed in something, and they accomplished the impossible, right? They were ahead of their time. And some, they speak in such a way 
that no one can compare, right? How can you say that these people, just because they're not Christians, just because they don't believe in Jesus Christ, that their good works are not good? How can you say that? Look at everything it's accomplished. And yet, here is Paul, and he's saying that without love, I am nothing, I gain nothing. And you can argue, you can say, well, they have love. They have love for their families, right? Um, they have love for their careers. They have their passions, right? How can you say that they don't have love? Right? How can you just make a, a judgment call just like that? Right? Well, you have to understand what Paul means by love. And he, he's, he doesn't leave love open-ended for anyone who's reading it to just define it any way that they want to. Right? Love is not just a subjective feeling or emotion or a thought that you have. If you look at verses 4 through 8, when Paul is describing love, he personifies it. He makes, he describes love in such a way as if love, though a concept, is a person. And that's really important to understanding this passage. So that's why I'm saying the right question is not what is love, right? The right question is who is love? And of course, that question ultimately points to Jesus Christ. Who is love, right? And we're going to look at all the descriptions here. And while we do that, I want you to think about Jesus Christ, okay? That he is the central figure that validates anything as worthwhile. Any of the good works that Paul says, without love, is nothing. He gains nothing. It's just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. It's just a noisy echo in an empty room. Or it's a shrill sound that, is, um, that people don't want to hear, that can't be heard, that cannot be enjoyed, right? You have to understand, as we go through the descriptions of love, you have to understand that ultimately it's a description of Jesus Christ. And by anchoring that definition of love on the person of Christ, on who he is, how he lived his life, and what he came to do, then you come to an understanding of what true good works is. Because true good works is anchored in true love, which, is, which flows from the person who is love itself, God himself, right? Christ himself. So let's answer this question, who is love, right? Verse 4, we're going to move down to verse 8. I want you to look at your Bibles, and, and as I'm giving you the definitions, the, the meanings behind these descriptions of love, mentally connect how Christ showed this, how he lived this, how he is this description, okay? Verse 4, love is patient and kind. Do you know why these two are paired together like this? It's because patience is a... I don't want to say it's a passive act, but you're not doing anything actively in your world. When something actively happens to you, you are now engaging in patience, right? Does that make sense? It's a response to an external action or an internal action. It's a response. And kindness is not a response. 
It's an initiating action, and that's why Paul starts out the definition of love by pairing these two words, love is patient and kind, meaning love is both a, a willingness to remain tranquil and a willingness to wait on God, but at the same time, it is kind, it is an active compassion and mercy for others. Love is not just passive, okay, I'm waiting on God, and love is not just active, I'm doing everything and not waiting. Love is both. It's both a responsive waiting and tranquility and an active showing of compassion and mercy. He moves on to say, love does not envy, in verse 4. Envy is an intense negative feeling over another's achievements or success, right? So Jesus, when he was suffering, he was patient. He did not open up his mouth. He waited on the Father's will. He was tranquil, but he was also kind. He sought out people. He healed them. He preached the gospel to them. He showed them their need for himself as the Messiah. He went around. He was not envious of anyone. He was not envious of John the Baptist. He was not envious of any of the Roman officials in power. He was not envious of the, of the scribes and, and Sadducees and the, uh, and the Pharisees. He was not envious of anyone. He was not even envious of the fact that God the Father was still in heaven and he was the one to let go of heaven and his godly position and come down. He was not envious of the Father, nor was he envious of the Holy Spirit. He did not consider, he did not consider it um, to, he did not consider that holding on to being equal to God was something that he had to continue to maintain. He was willing to let go of it, right? He does not, love does not boast. This is verbally praising yourself. This is pretty obvious, right? This is when you don't wait for other people to praise you about something, but you, you go out and tell them how awesome you are, right? Love is not arrogant. There is not an exaggerated self-conception of yourself. It is not rude. Now, this is something that I actually struggled with um, because, well, not only because I was rude, but because I felt for a divine definition of love, why is rudeness in there? Because I thought rudeness is totally cultural, right? What's rude down here is not rude up in the north. What's rude up in the north is not rude down here, right? Um, and I thought it's totally relative and cultural. Why is this in there? But then I realized that Part of the wisdom of living in love is also acting in a consistent but not sinful way with the public social standard of expectations and living, right? So that's in there. What this means is you are not seeking to stand out to the point where you offend people unnecessarily. If the gospel offends people, that's great. It's supposed to offend people. But if you offend people, that is not love. Paul says love is not rude. Love is not contrary to a public and social standard. Right? It does not insist on its own way. This means insisting on your own way means devoting serious effort to your own advantage. 
serious effort to your own advantage. You have all your ducks in one pot and that, and that, or one basket, and that basket is your bringing advantage to yourself, moving ahead in life by yourself, right? It does not insist on its own way. It's not serious about that. It's very interesting, right? And if you think of Christ, yeah, he was definitely, he did not insist on his own way, right? It's not irritable. That one's an easy one, becoming angry and wrathful, right? So in a conversation, we all have pet peeves. We all have, you know, things that we get annoyed at, right? I'm a type A personality sometimes. I have lots of things that annoy me, right? But by the grace of God, right, when those things come, the grace of God shapes us. It shapes how we feel. It shapes how we think so that we don't lose control and that we become angry and wrathful. And that is not just an external expression through verbal or nonverbal behavior, but it is an internal reality that Paul is addressing. Right? It is not resentful. Reason not being resentful literally means determining wrongs by a mathematical process. Right? So if you're resentful, you are determining what is wrong by using a mathematical process, you know what that is? That's keeping score of who did you wrong. That's what that is. This person wronged me four times this year. I'm not letting that go. That's resentment, right? Determining wrongs by a mathematical process, keeping score of who did you wrong how many times, right? Not resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. When injustice happens, you're not happy with it, right? Okay, I know we all did this, right? Downloading music, downloading, streaming movies for free when they're not supposed to be free, okay? When you get that link, you're like, oh, thank you so much. You're rejoicing in injustice, okay? Yeah, we can't do that, all right? does not rejoice at wrongdoing. You're not happy with injustice, right? Um, that's a silly example, but a more serious example. Um, I remember in college, we were having a, a ethic, and it was in our ethics class, and we were having a discussion about um, uh, slave labor, uh, people being paid very low wages across this country. And I remember people justifying it a lot. Now, I understand it's a, it's a complicated issue, and I don't want to reductionistically approach it, right? Um, but at the same time, if you say something like, well, without us, you know, they wouldn't have any jobs in the first place, it's kind of dismissing of the other side. That's a very dismissive approach, right? And... Um, You don't want to be in a position where you're happy with certain injustices in the world, even though you are a part of the problem, but you excuse yourself from it by making those kind of arguments, saying that if this wasn't there, then they wouldn't have anything at all. Well, the counter argument is, well, you can actually change and instead, you couldn't actually take that injustice away and replace it with something better. Then the question then moves toward a different question, 
right? The, it, the conversation moves toward a different question. Well, that's going to cost too much, or it's impractical. Well, that's a different issue, isn't it? Right? It's not an injustice issue anymore, right? It's a, it's a, me a methodology issue, a strategy issue, right? And by the way, uh, the same argument was made for slavery when William Wilberforce was alive. And people called it economic suicide. That if you, if you ban slavery from the nation, a nation that heavily depended upon slavery, you're going to bring the nation into economic poverty. It's going to be self-destruction. Right? So they called it economic suicide. William Wilberforce, of course, God was moving it, right? and there were other people involved. Ultimately, he abolished the slave trade in his lifetime. Right before he died, it was abolished. Right? Sometimes that which is disadvantageous to us is ethically, morally, and biblically necessary to do. And think of Christ. He died to do the Father's will. He gave up his life. He gave up his family, his Trinitarian family. He broke it up, right? So that he can take people who did not belong in the family, who didn't deserve to be a part of that family, in order to graft them in, in order to adopt them and call them sons and daughters. That's us guys, right? That's what happened. Paul moves on to say, love rejoices with the truth. This is, what is the truth? It's rejoicing in Jesus Christ. Because if you remember, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It rejoices with Jesus Christ. Who he is, what he came to do. He came to do the Father's will. This is not just some relative truth you make up for yourself. This is not some relative cultural truth that your society has constructed in its, in its time period, in its lifetime. This is a universal truth that came from heaven, came to earth, and died so that we can be adopted into his family. This is that truth. And all good works that does not rejoice with the truth who is Jesus Christ, it's not good works. Jesus Christ becomes the fulcrum and the center for any kind of good works to be validated as good. Do you see, do you see what I'm trying to do? There's a reason why Paul personifies love and then moves on to, dis, to define it that way as a person and not purely a concept or a philosophical idea. It's because he is centering good works upon Jesus Christ and upon God himself. It bears, love bears all things. Meaning, what this means is, bearing all things is when you try to cover something in order to keep something undesirable from coming in. For example, if you're on a ship and there's a water leak, you're covering the hole so that the water doesn't come into the ship and that causes the ship to sink. Love bears all things. You know how uncomfortable that is, right? To keep 
being in a position where you're defending at, in the face of constant onslaught, right? Of something undesirable coming in, you're constantly defending against that. It's not a comfortable place, but love, that's what love does. And that's what Christ did. It cost him his life to, to defend. It believes all things. It, meaning, it considers something worthy of your trust. Your trust is very important because your trust comes from your heart. And once that heart is broken, it's very hard to heal. It believes all things. You know what that means? It doesn't mean that you believe every single person or doctrine that comes into the church. It means that whatever situation or circumstance that God puts you in, you believe that that's worthy of your trust. Because it's God who is your shepherd. And whether it be through valleys or through mountains, as long as it's your shepherd who's leading you through, yeah, you're going to believe that it's going to be okay. It hopes all things. Meaning it looks forward to something with confidence. You're not, you're not seeing it yet. It's not here yet. You're not enjoying the results of it yet, right? But that's the nature of hope. You place confidence in something that is not yet present and enjoyable right now. You're looking forward to something that is to come. It endures all things, meaning it maintains belief or action in the face of opposition. You know, it's hard to be a church where we're focusing on shaping our identity. Because once you start talking about identity, it hits in very personal spaces. Because what happens? Your values come up, things that you protect, and your idols come up, things that you worship. Right? When you maintain belief or action in the face of opposition. It's not a popular topic, but it's an absolutely necessary topic. Christ himself believed in the Father's will in the face of all opposition. He got opposition from all sides. He not only got it from Satan, okay? He not only got it from Pharisees who were opposed to him, he got it from his own disciples. The people he was loving and cultivating and training are the very people who abandoned him. And he got it from his own human nature, from himself. Right? In the Garden of Gethsemane, he didn't want to die. He didn't want to suffer. As a human being, of course, he knew he had to suffer. And of course, he also, at the same time, wanted to suffer in some divine way because he wanted to accomplish the Father's will. But at the same time, he said, if it be possible, let this cup, let the suffering on the cross pass from me. But not my will, but yours be done. Right? He got it from himself, from his own human nature. He was attacked. Right? And love, it never ends, meaning it's always present. Prophecies, tongues, right? All this, very important right now. Very important in the church and very important to the growth of your spiritual life. But one day in glory, prophecies, tongues, all of these things, they're not going to be necessary anymore. You know what's going to continue? 
is love. And remember the question. It's not what is love, but who is love. And it's in Christ that good works find its definition of good. Without Christ, once you take that out, there is no good. Do you understand this? There is no good works apart from Christ. So if it's not from Christ, right, those good works that you or anyone else may do is not good, it's not acceptable to God. Right? And that's why we need to constantly be dependent upon Christ himself. Because we can't continue, we can't ever come to a place where we think, I am good enough to be the good preacher that this church needs to, be, needs to have. I am good enough to be the prayer warrior that this church needs. I am good enough to be the leader, the elder, the deacon that this church needs. There is never a time when we should ever rely on our own self-righteousness and our own morality to define what our good works are going to be. It's not because I did this, or I didn't do that, or I, I did whatever, or I avoided whatever sin. That is not the definition of what is good. It's your reliance upon Christ and how Christ through the ministry of the Holy Spirit working in your heart and mind and through the ministry of the Word of God as, it, as you are constantly coming into contact with the teaching of the Word of God, of the Bible, that a good work, God sees that and He says, that is good. Okay? That is a good work. And if there is no reliance, if a good work happens without any reliance on Jesus Christ, then that work is not good. This is hard to measure. Only God can judge. And we as brothers and sisters, we can help each other kind of bring clarity to exactly did we do this from faith or not. We can hold each other accountable lovingly and truthfully, but that is something we need to ask ourselves before God. And good works is only good because it flows from Christ himself. Okay? From Christ. And if you take that piece out, that very crucial piece, no matter how pragmatically it's beneficial, no matter how many people it helps, no matter how impressive it may be, apart from Christ, it is not good. And what we need to be concerned about is not chasing after these accomplishments that are extravagant and impressive and whatever. Right? Our church is doing great reaching out to the community. We're a, we're a second gen, originally Korean American, now Asian, and hopefully more kingdom of God looking congregation. Right? Do you realize... Like, seriously, the hearts that you have is truly, it's truly humbling. The fact that you're open. The fact that, yeah, you're not really in your comfortable place, but the fact that you're willing to be there, and the fact that you know it's right, um, and that you're open to it, you know, that's, that's just amazing. But let there never be a time where we boast 
in what we have achieved as a congregation, right? But let us always be dependent upon Christ, saying, you know, none of that could have ever happened if it wasn't somehow Jesus Christ and God and the Holy God the Father and the Holy Spirit somehow working in our hearts and our minds. This is not a decision I made. It's just God kind of made it happen, right? Like that's 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 an example of how a heart looks like when it's genuinely dependent upon Christ. You're not going to give credit to yourself. You're going to give credit to God, and you're going to believe it. Because one of the things you will never say, that, no, that people won't notice unless it's the people that are close to you, is that in public, we can say, yeah, it's God, it's by His grace. But think about the conversations you have with the person who is closest to you. Right? First, that's the first step. Think about the conversations you have privately that no one here will hear except for that one or two people that are closest to you. Do you give credit to God, to them? Or do you give credit to yourself? The next thing you should consider is when people try to insult you or slander you or they try to dismiss the worthiness of your good work, right? And you're angry about it now, you're frustrated, you're like, man, they don't even get what I went through to make this happen. They don't even, they don't even understand what I gave up, you see? That should tell you you're not relying on Christ. You're relying on yourself. And that good work, you have betrayed that it is not good because, it's, because it is not from Christ. It is from your own sinful nature. And I, I'm the first in line to be, to be guilty of that. And every day, I need to humble myself and repent because I think I did something great. And I'm telling you right now, in public, we may say the right things. We may say, yeah, it's all God. It's, it's God's grace. He did this. Think about your conversations in private with the people that you have no filters with. And think, not only that, that's only one layer. Think about the other layer. When you are in conflict with them, and they are getting on your nerves, and they are making you angry and wrathful, which, by the way, is not a characteristic of love, right? And who do you give credit to? Who do you try to show did this good work? See yourself? But even in your anger, you say, you know, I don't know, you're right. I don't deserve any credit. It's God, right? Can you come to that point? Because if you can't, your heart is relying upon yourself, right? But even in your sinfulness, you acknowledge it's Christ who has done anything good in your life, right? That may show that your good work is from love. And that love is not any relative love, but it is a love that Jesus Christ is himself. And I'm going to close with this verse as the praise team comes up. 1 John 4, 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 through 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, right? And whoever loves has been born of God, talking about regeneration, and knows God, talking about a relationship and a, and a 
sanctifying journey with him. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for bringing us together. And as we consider what is good works, Lord, may you take the scalpel of your word and open up our hearts and reveal our values and our sinful nature and the idols that we worship. And God, when we see those ugly, filthy idols and values and sinfulness, help us not to try to justify ourselves before your all-seeing presence. But Lord, let our minds move toward who Christ is, what he gave up, the suffering and the pain and the loss that he took on. Let that completely cleanse our hearts. Let that change our hearts, God, and circumcise our hearts so that when our idols and our sinful values are revealed by the scalpel of your word, that you may find us as a people who is willing to submit to the authority of Christ in our lives, a people who is humbly dependent and relying upon his righteousness alone. So Lord, mold us into the people that you want us to be we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please arise with me as we sing our response song.